Recently I was having a conversation on the phone with somebody who was commenting about something that I had said or perhaps it was something I had written about how to approach practice, a fundamental approach to meditation practice. And this person was commenting that that they knew many people who, even after years of practicing, they still felt like a failure because their samadhi wasn't good enough or they weren't making enough progress and and uh, how unfortunate they felt it was and despite all the good effort they were making that they were still seemed to be caught in this negative attitude towards their own practice and, and I certainly can sympathize with with that I've, I've heard this myself and people describing their practice in, in very critical ways even though they're making lots of good effort and I don't right now remember what I said in that phone conversation, but uh, earlier this evening I was remembering the, the subject matter and it occurred to me it could be useful to raise it again in this uh, more public format and consider the overall approach we have. How do we feel about our practice? And, and if we do feel like we're failing, what do we do with that? Because sooner or later all of us will feel like we're failing. But for that matter also, if we think we're doing amazingly well, if we think we're wonderful, we think we're succeeding, what do we do with that? So success and failure. How do we receive these perceptions? What is there to learn from success and failure? Because not everybody feels like a failure. Some people think that they're absolutely wonderful. And, However, the fact is that sooner or later everybody has to experience a sense of failure. And it's important, very important, that we don't misperceive that. So there are two particular points that I think are worth making regarding this situation where even after a long while of practicing people still feel very caught up in judging themselves. And, and that's the key really to start with noticing are we still judging ourselves? Are we saying that it shouldn't be this way. If it is this way, 
Is it helpful to say it shouldn't be this way? Many times I've spoken about that incident when about, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago now, I was in Thailand and had the operation on my knees and, and it hadn't gone uh, according to what I had expected and after many weeks or even months I was still uh, struggling very much with my knees not bending and not being able to sit on the floor and, and as a monk you can't sit on the floor, it feels very threatening and I felt very threatened and as it happened on this occasion I was still in Bangkok and Ajahn Shah came down to Bangkok and I took the opportunity to go around and see him. He himself was in hospital and, and, and when I tried to bow to him I couldn't bow properly and he, he looked down, he was sitting on the bed, looked down at me and, and I started explaining to him, oh Lumpur, it shouldn't be this way, the doctor had said it was going to be like this and it was going to be like that and it was going to take this amount of time and, and it hasn't, it's turned out like this, I've had you know, all this general anaesthetic, all this surgery and, and still my knees won't bend and, and he just looked at me with a surprised expression and kind of almost grunted at me and said, what do you mean it shouldn't be this way? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Now he wasn't pointing to some sort of magical story about the universe has got a program to teach me something and that's why I'm having to suffer. He was pointing to the basic law of cause and effect. If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. In other words, if there aren't causes for it to be like this, then it wouldn't be like this. There are causes for it to be this way, so why add on to it it shouldn't be this way? Now, there's the conceptual perspective of saying, ideally, it would be good if it wasn't this way. Well, we know that. But what he was referring to, and what I was struggling with, was this emotional overload of rejecting the reality, the reality of the moment, it is this way and I was fighting it. So the first thing with this consideration of facing the sense of failure, if that's what we're having to deal with, let's have a look and see, are we saying it shouldn't be this way? It might sound very simple, we might not want to stop and look at it, but I highly recommend that we do stop and look at it because we are the ones, we are... 100% responsible. If we're saying it shouldn't be this way, whether it's our, like last week we are talking about sadness, you look at the world and you feel sad, you say, oh, it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be feeling sad, or the world shouldn't be this way. Why do we overlay the reality with that, and does that help? Remember, we're not talking about the idealistic, conceptual perspective. We're talking about the feeling, emotional relationship to the reality. It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel like a failure. I shouldn't be failing. Or if it's anger, if you're possessed by ill will, I shouldn't have this ill will. I shouldn't have this anger. Saying it shouldn't be this way, we need to take the time to stop and look and be honest and accept we're doing this. We are 100% responsible for this battle that we're engaged with ourselves, we're fighting ourselves. And to look and see if it's helping or not. No, it doesn't help to be fighting ourselves, to add this judgment. It's understandable that we have this tendency of mind because if we look at 
the kind of education we had, the way we were brought up, it's very normal. It's uh, uh, comparing, judging, discriminative intelligence. That's the name of the game. That's the schooling system that we went to. Who's best? Who's right? Who's wrong? Taking sides for and against. We get a strong sense of self when we know what we're for or what we're against. But if we're compulsively taking sides for and against, then guess what? Well, as we were just chanting this evening in the Dhammachaka Sutta, taking sides for pleasure, the Buddha pointed out, that's a dead end. Taking sides against pleasure, that's a dead end. And so likewise with this saying, I should be this way or I shouldn't be that way, that's the two extremes. And when I point out to people, you don't have to say, I shouldn't be this way, then they seem to assume that I'm saying that they should be this way. That's just flipping to the other extreme. That, of course, is what the Buddha himself did after 29 years of taking sides for having a good time, getting disillusioned. And, and then he went to the other extreme of taking on asceticism, taking position against indulgence and pleasure. But then eventually, thankfully, what he discovered and most fortunately what he shared was that there is an alternative. There is the possibility of training our attention to inhibit the reaction of taking sides, not repress the reaction of taking sides, inhibit the reaction of taking sides for and against ourselves and simply watch it. It's called being mindful and being restrained and reflecting wisely. Mindfulness, restraint and wise reflection, these are, these are primary tools, some of the primary tools that we can develop, we need to develop, if we're caught up in this taking sides for and against ourselves. And it doesn't take a lot of practice to get a taste of the benefit of this, just to consider that we don't have to judge ourselves when we feel like we're failing. Who says it's wrong to be failing? Well, if we're not keeping our precepts, there is a reason to not feel good about ourselves. But if we are keeping our precepts, what's the problem? Why would we want to condemn ourselves? So the first thing to do if we find ourselves caught up and in such a struggle as feeling like I'm failing, my samadhi is not good enough, my mindfulness is not strong enough, my wisdom is not acute enough, my commitment is not firm enough. I'm not good enough. If we find ourselves caught up in that, let's stop and be really careful and see if we're not compounding the suffering by saying it shouldn't be this way. And then be careful we don't just flip to the other side and say, well, it should be this way. It doesn't have to be should or shouldn't. It can be that mindful, restrained, wisely reflecting on the situation say, it's like this. Of course the mind's been programmed to take sides. We feel good when we take sides for and against. We get a strong sense of me being somebody. But that's dysfunctional. That's a very limited way of living. And the Buddha's encouragement and invitation is to try out this experiment by inhibiting the tendency to always fight ourselves fight ourselves by taking sides, by judging. So that would be the first thing I would suggest if we have a 
perception of I am a failure, I am not good enough. Let's not make it worse by adding to it. And then the second consideration that comes to my mind is are we really looking at it directly? From very early on in life we learn to avoid suffering. Those around us are busy avoiding suffering. The more affluent they are, the more sophisticated and complex distractions they have, holidays and treats and shopping and ways of avoiding the feeling of suffering of life, whether it's feeling like you're a failure because you've just fallen out with somebody and had an argument and you feel really disappointed about it or you just lost a job or lost your health or somehow feeling that you're not good enough. The recommendation and the encouragement that the Buddha gives us is to pay attention to that, not to distract ourselves. If we try and distract ourselves, does that mean the suffering goes away? It, well, it just goes into unawareness, that's all. Like I think last week we were talking about sadness. We, we don't really pay attention to it, it just goes into unawareness and then becomes more difficult. It festers in unawareness, becomes more difficult to deal with. So the encouragement is to first inhibit the judgment, stop fighting with ourselves, and then turn around and really look at it. What does it feel like? And again, to emphasize this is not a mental exercise. I mean, when I say this, when I talk like this, I suspect that some people think that we're just doing a mental exercise. But this is the all of us that is receiving where we're at. That's the encouragement. The all of us to receive the feeling of I am a failure. I am a failure. I am a failure. Can we really turn around and look at that? Or, I feel angry. Some people pick up the Buddhist teachings on anatta in a way whereby they feel embarrassed about even thinking the thought I, as if they don't have an I. Unless you've finished your work, you still have a, not just an I, but you have a very deluded sense of I. All of us suffer from having a deluded sense of I. Rather, we need to accept full responsibility for it. I am angry. I am sad. I am a failure. 100% I accept it. 100% I accept this perception of I am failing. And this is what it feels like. This is the investigation of dukkha. This is, this is what we're called to be doing. And so again, it's not just a mental exercise, it's the, the whole of us. You know, in our heads we can have this story going on and if we're identified up in our heads, which is the case for most of us as we start out again because the way we were, the example received from those around us when we were young, everybody's busy thinking so much about everything and so we learn to think about everything and we think that we can sort everything out by thinking, although there's plenty of evidence that we can't. But nevertheless, unless we have really wise teachings, we can stay up there in the attic and just 
entertain ourselves with mental distractions. If the whole of us is involved, well then we have to admit that there's something in our chest that doesn't feel good. A contraction, a pain. Often this is the case when people start meditating, they become aware of a pain in their chest, a physical pain in their chest where the heart is. And we have to be careful if we first come across it that we don't go into it shouldn't be this way. Rather learn how to soften around it, get interested in it. This is interesting. This does not feel free. Who's responsible for this? Well, we could get into blaming somebody. There's always somebody we could blame for it. But in the end, if we're honest, we could come back and say, well, this is, this is my suffering and I accept it fully. If we have mindfulness, we have restraint and we have wise reflection working for us, we don't have to be afraid of thinking in terms of I. We don't have to be afraid of self. We're not trying to get rid of self. We're interested in understanding this perception of self. That's very different. We're not trying to get rid of sadness. We're not trying to get rid of the feeling of being a failure. We're not trying to get rid of being angry. We're trying to find a way to cultivate a skillful relationship with what is in the moment. Dhamma is what is. Practicing Dhamma is acquainting ourselves, training ourselves to be with what is. It's not just educating ourselves with information about what is. That's what you can read in books. You can accumulate lots of information about what is. And that's certainly got its place. It's the first stage of practice, the Pariyati. But Patipati practice is acquainting ourselves with what is, the whole of us meeting what is. And what is is always in relationship to where I am at here and now, the whole body and mind. This is my experience right now. Now, it might be, and it is for some people, feeling successful, a lot of joy, a lot of gladness, a lot of happiness, a lot of contentment. Even if there is a lot of joy and gladness and contentment, still it's really important that we have a perspective on that because if we allow ourselves to get lost in that joy and gladness and contentment, then when it changes, which unless you've finished your work. If you've finished your work, then you don't need to be listening to this talk. But if you haven't finished your work, then we need to be very careful with that joy and gladness and contentment that we're not getting lost in it. Because when it changes, as it's bound to do, can we accord with the change? I had a very dear friend who has passed away now, but she had very good meditation when she was younger. She had a very strong mind and was able to access subtle and beautiful states of refined inner peace. But as she got older and her mental faculties started to faint, she couldn't do it anymore. And sadly, she was always disappointed about it, dwelling on a sense of having lost something very beautiful. Well, things that are beautiful and uh, relative, we are at risk of losing them. Beautiful friendships. A beautiful summer's day turns into a drich winter's day. We lose constantly. We lose our health, we lose our friendship, we lose our faculties. Do we know how to accord with loss or are we addicted to winning and succeeding? Well, the wise approach is to accept that joy and sorrow, gladness and sadness, success and failure come and go. 
And so we equip ourselves with mindfulness, restraint and wise reflection. And we're careful. If we're succeeding and we're happy, well, we enjoy that and let it refresh us and renew us, but we're careful. And then when we're not joyful, when we're sad and feeling like we failed, disappointed in ourselves, and even if we're critical of ourselves and judging ourselves, if we can meet ourselves in our judgment, this is what it feels like to be self-critical. Turn around and look at it, feel it, the whole of me, feel it. And remembering, again, this is not a mental exercise. Yes, we have the information in our head, wonderful. But how does it feel in our hearts? Is our chest comfortable? Is our breathing, are we breathing in our belly? Comfortably, easy breathing. Are our, are our toes comfortable? Are they all clenched up? What does the whole of me feel about feeling like a failure? So if we approach these perceptions of success and failure with this attitude, then I think there's a very good chance that we'll start to learn the lesson that we need to learn, that we are doing the suffering. Now, having said that, having said it many times before, uh, it might sound like I'm suggesting that it's easy, and I'm definitely not suggesting that it's easy. And sometimes then find the, these tendencies of self-judgment, self-criticism, sadness, ill will, and really they can feel like they're too much. And even if what I'm saying in this contemplation makes sense. In practice, when you turn to look at it, it can feel like it's just too threatening and overwhelming. And in that case, we do need to be ready to turn away from it. We need the agility to know, okay, I'm not ready for this yet. So why, again, we're so grateful for the Buddha's teachings. You read what the Buddha said about the five ways of removing distracting thoughts. There's not just one way of removing distracting thoughts, like overcoming distracting thoughts you know, by ignoring them. Just come back to the breath, come back to the sound of silence, come back to the sensation of the body. There's, there's, there's one approach. We've got this meditation technique, we just keep applying this one meditation technique. Well, the Buddha said you need agility. Sometimes ignoring the distractions can work. Sometimes we need to look in the opposite direction, and that might work. Sometimes we need to stop and analyse what's really going on there. There are many different approaches to practice. and Sometimes you more or less just have to grit your teeth and bear with it. That's also an option. Sometimes the obstruction can feel so intense that we just have to grit our teeth and bear with it until it passes. So just trying to overcome our sense of limitation is a very limited approach. We need to be more agile. and Or just turning to samadhi also. Sometimes you know, people learn a little meditation technique, concentrating on the breath or sensations in the body and sound of silence. And, and you use willful concentration, excluding all distractions and concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. And, and then the mind might reach a point where there's a letting go and you drop into a state that seems to just be 
Look at you know, just there. It's just like it was there all the time. You just dropped into it, and it's lovely and peaceful. That can happen. However, if we don't have mindfulness and restraint of wise reflection, at that point we can get attached to it. And then we think, well, this is what I've got to do. I'm just going to do more of this. And so we keep trying to do the same exercise and having the same experience and developing this relative level of samadhi. However, again, if we look at what the Buddha taught, he didn't just teach about samadhi. He taught the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, samadhi, and discernment or wisdom. So we need not just one technique or one approach, but the agility to exercise those faculties, that those, use those tools that are going to be needed at the time. And if, as I was saying, we feel it's too much, maybe what's called for is investing in conventional sense of well-being doing things that make ourselves feel good like getting healthy, physically healthy going for some nice long walks in the woods going for walks in the woods can be very helpful what the Japanese called forest bathing or go and sit by the lake and just watch the swans on the lake physically relaxing activity can help us feel good. Being generous can help ourselves feel good. But I don't feel generous, I just feel angry. I just resent everybody. Well, it can be that way, but sometimes we just have to make that extra bit of effort, that extra bit of effort, so as to just break out of the habit of always identifying with negativity. Again, I expect I've told the story several times before of an occasion many years ago when I was living in the monastery in Devon and somebody had been visiting from our monastery in Chithurst and they were due to go back to Chithurst and I had the thought as this person was leaving, I had the thought, I could give this jar of honey, somebody just give me a jar of honey, very, very nice honey, and I thought I could give this jar of honey to, for them to take back and give to my friend Kitty Sorrow because Kitty Sorrow was living in Chithurst in those days and he was unwell and and I thought this really good quality honey that would be nice I could send it back and it was a nice thought and, but then I had the next thought came up well actually I don't get given nice honey very often I don't think I want to give it to him well I do like Kitty Sorrow and, and I want to help him and I'd like to offer this to Kitty Sorrow and, but then actually I don't want to and there's this tussle going on and I just made myself give it I just, just okay take this and give it to Kitty Sorrow and that extra bit of effort now talking like that you can say, well, that's, that's forceful. And say, well, there's a difference between being forceful and being firm. Being forceful is too much. Being firm is sometimes called for. Having made myself break out of the selfish habit of wanting to keep the jar of honey and, and do something that I believe was wholesome had a good effect. And here I am now, 30 or something, 40, whatever years later, 35 years later, and I'm still pleased that I gave Kitty Sara that jar of honey. Whereas if I'd just kept it and eaten it, I probably would have forgotten about it. And perhaps, if anything, I would have still be feeling bad 35 years later. Miserable, selfish git. So there is that, sometimes that extra effort is required. Like, you know, if you start, you want to start a lawnmower. Lawnmowers have got uh, rotary engines in them and the 
And the, uh, to get it started, you have to use muscle power. You don't use magic. You don't put a key in it. But you put this muscle power in it, you tie the rope around it, and then you, you yank it, and process of it turning around, you, uh, it kick-starts, and it takes care of itself. If you're too forceful trying to start the lawnmower, you can actually hurt your arm, damage yourself. So it's the right amount of effort, learning to make the right amount of effort so as to break out of the, the habits that we're caught in. And to learn how to make the right amount of effort, then again, let's go back to where we started and, and be careful that we're not caught up in taking sides for and against. That's what throws us out of balance. We're caught up in saying, I shouldn't be this way, or I should be that way. That's dangerous. That's vulnerable. But if we have some perspective on that, which means we have some mindfulness, so yeah, I can afford to put a little bit extra effort into this, see if we can break out of this old self-perpetuating pattern of negativity of I'm no good, I'm a failure. Learning how to build up our storehouse of goodness, physical exercise or generosity, being kind, really going out of our way to be helpful. If we just do the bare minimum that we can get away with, well, of course we're not going to feel good about ourselves. However, if we recognize we have faith, if we have confidence in Buddhist teachings, in this possibility that goodness outshines the dark shadows of ignorance, if we have faith, we have confidence in that, well, then say, well, I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to put myself out to be helpful. I'm going to make that extra effort to, I'm going to set the alarm in the morning 15 minutes earlier so I can go and take a shower and get myself in a good shape while I do my exercises and sit meditation rather than sleeping in an extra 15 minutes and, and then not feeling good and then dragging ourselves to a cushion and sitting there and feeling miserable. So there is a time and place also for rather than looking at the sense of failure or the sadness or the particular form of suffering that we feel limited by, stepping back and say, well, I need to build up more strength here. I need to build up more confidence. I need to build up more goodness. Instead of trying to overcome our sense of limitation, build up the strength of goodness and appreciation, an appreciation for beauty, I was having a conversation with somebody else recently and they were talking about what a powerful resource their experience of beauty has been in their life, the beauty of the kindness and love they were shown when they were young, beautiful scenery, beautiful friendships. To really enjoy wholesome beauty and to let that joy help us relax. And just to stop and look at nature, stop trying to overcome our struggles, find a way of equipping ourselves with the kind of ability that means we don't have to fight ourselves. We can face ourselves, we can meet ourselves, meet ourselves with interest and kindness. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayang Dhamma Gathaya Sadhu Karang Dadamase Sadhu